During World War II, there was an American who decided to go to Japan to study Zen. They weren't giving out visas at the time to Americans for obvious reasons. But this man, his name was Paul Reps, went anyways. And when he got to the customs officer and asked for his request for his passport to be stamped so he could go into Japan, he was told, no, you can't come in. So he paused, and as the story goes, he wrote a note and slipped it back to the uh, person working there. And he read the note, and he stamped his passport, and he let him in. And that was the beginning of a, a long study for this gentleman who became a Zen teacher, a poet, etc. Some of us know him. What did he write on the little piece of paper? Sipping a cup of tea, I stopped the war. Sipping a cup of tea, I stopped the war. So as we are here in the, about the middle of the retreat, we've been emphasizing very, very much that practice and daily life are one. that our practice is holistic in a sense, that it includes the whole human being that we inhabit, body and mind, and that it inhabits the capacity of awareness, inhabits and influences all of the relationships that this mind and body have, that we have, all the activities. So we're here on retreat and we're with ourselves. So sipping a cup of tea, I stopped the war. It's a very relational statement, isn't it? Now, we don't know, and it's best uh, with poetry that you leave things unknown to the rational mind, whether he meant the war, the actual war, uh, which didn't stop for a while, or whether he meant the war in his mind. And it leaves open the question, what is the relationship between the two, stopping the inner war and the outer wars? So what I'd like to speak on tonight is an attitude towards Dharma that is holistic. That includes all of who we are. That includes all of how we interact on so many different levels. One way to look at life is that it's just made up of different living systems. It starts right here in the core with our mind, its relationship to itself and the heart. Branches out to the body, to our interactions with others close ones, people at work, greater communities, and the planet itself, ultimately all of life. So each level of our, of, our, of our living system that we're inhabiting at a certain time, and they interface quite a bit, that's where practice is. There's none of them that we can leave out. In the structure of the talk, I'll look at the potential, the potential of the mind, the potential of the heart, to actually be free, to function freely and influence in a very helpful way these different living systems. Well, then we'll look at our own experience. Uh, what blocks that potentiality? And then how do we work with it? And that's all we've been doing here anyways, right? It's another angle in on the same thing. And it's not another angle. It's just different words. It's been emphasized by us, each of us, in different ways. So I'll be drawing from uh, examples from nature and some classical scripture as well, okay? some classical old teachings. So <clears throat> to start uh, with the potential of the mind, that's how we started the retreat. If you remember back to Friday, I gave the opening talk. We started with Buddha, with the capacity of the mind and heart, its innate potential to be unlimited, unbound, to, in a way, receive all but not be affected and overwhelmed. So that's the heart and mind that we're trying to touch or allowing to touch us in our practice. So back in March, I was, uh, uh, February or March, I was with my girlfriend. We were vacationing in Costa Rica. 
And uh, I don't know if anyone's been there. This is, a, this is an example from nature. Okay. <laughs> and uh, we stayed in the cloud forest near Monteverde. And for me, it was just a stunning, it was a stunning display of the bounty and the beauty and the vibrancy of a living ecosystem. So a guide one day took us into one of the deep uh, reserves in the forest there. And what I saw just stopped my mind for a while. It, there were so many layers of life that were interpenetrating and inter interacting in a way that was so beautiful, so exquisite, and so balanced. So I remember we, we stopped underneath some trees, and uh, there were all these ants coming down. It had rained earlier, like thousands of ants. It's kind of like Jurassic Park there, actually, if you've ever seen that movie. And then there were birds, all kinds of birds, birds I'd never seen of all different colors that were coming to eat the ants. Sorry, it, it's not such a peaceful place, but there's, there's a point here. <laughs> um, and the greenery was just fantastic. We, what we did at one point is we, we went uh, on these tours where you can, you can walk at the floor level of the forest and you see one type of growth. And then you can walk on these uh, canopies where you uh, have bridges which are about halfway up. And then you can walk on top of the forest as well. And actually on the top, we went through these zip lines. Has anyone ever heard of these? It's like ecotourism. It's actually quite funny. They, they advertise this as a great way to see the forest where you get thrust across this huge chasm of like, I don't know, three, 500 feet way up in the air and you're going along this zip line, you're just being thrust through the air. And uh, they advertise it as a great way to see, but all you can see, and this is actually was in the guidebooks, it said the trees look like broccoli heads going past you at 100 miles an hour. <laughs> so that's about <laughs> that aside. What was amazing to look at the different levels of the forest was that a cloud forest, the way a cloud forest is formed is there's so much moisture in the air, it's, uh, I guess it's cloudy there about 85% of the time, that life can grow at all different levels with incredible, uh, incredible forms. I guess maybe 20 or so percent of the, what grows there is actually life that is growing off of life that's already in the air, trees that are already in the air. So you saw all this incredible flora and fauna, um, and it's also one of the richest birding areas of the world. So you saw this incredible mix of life. And the slogan, does anyone know what the slogan is for, uh, for Costa Rica? Pura vida, exactly. It means pure life. And there was a sense there of just this exquisite ecosystem that just, in its entirety, it just felt like pure life. Untouched, vibrant, interconnected. Now, of course, it wasn't all pleasant, though. It wasn't all peaceful, right? There was destruction and creation and all the rest of it. But as a whole, the conditions had come together for this exquisite display of pure life. So to me, this became and becomes a, a metaphor for the possibility of the mind, that the mind itself can in a way be an inner ecosystem where all of the content of the mind, all of the parts of the mind can actually coexist and not be in this constant struggle, this constant inner war. There may be movement, there may be inconsistency, but there's incredible life there, incredible vibrancy that comes from things being in harmony, things being in a sense of living balance. And when we look at our minds here, we don't see that, right? So much. We don't see so much of that pure life. So that's, that's a metaphor, that's a beautiful metaphor for me, for the mind. Also because it means that we don't, this metaphor, that we don't need to split anything off of our experience. We don't need to cut anything out. Okay? So there's potential. Now, of course, the story of the, the great uh, uh, forest in Costa Rica doesn't end there. Why? Well, the tour guide, as we were in there this one day, we could see much deeper in the forest than normally. And uh, the skies were blue. And it was beautiful. So much was exposed. And he said, this is great for you, but actually it's not a very good sign at all. Because we just had, he grew up there. He'd been there 35, 40 years or something. And there was a huge windstorm a few days before. So a lot of the, a lot of the trees were blown down. You could see much deeper in the forest. He said, this has never happened since he's been alive. And there were also birds that were coming in that were from um, lower altitudes that were taking over. Why? And these invasive species were coming in. Why? He said, because of both of these, because of global warming. So this isn't a 
this isn't, an, you know, I'm not going to give an ecological talk here. <laughs> uh, but that's another metaphor for the mind. And before we move to that, we need to see that the ecosystem in Costa Rica affects very much uh, the life of birds up here, because some of them go down there. And it affects the life of birds down in South America, deep down in South America. It's one of the great migratory patterns in the world. And that amount of foliage that you have there in all of the rainforests around the world, it affects very much the levels of CO2 on the planet. And it affects the whole balance of the Earth in general. So the living guy is affected by each part. So what happens in Costa Rica affects what happens. So even though it's just a living system, right? It is interdependent and it's, it is in relationship with other aspects of life. And those aspects of life are in relationship to us too, of course. So back to the metaphor of the mind. So invasive species be coming because of global warming. So what does that mean for our mind? If the potential of the mind has this, this pure life potential, then what's the current situation? Well, if we look at the, the teachings of the Buddha, then uh, the invasive species of the mind would be greed, hatred, and delusion. And we have a kind of inner global warming. If you haven't noticed, it's not too cool in there a lot of the time, is it? It's not too cool and spacious. You don't feel surrounded. You don't feel held. You don't feel nourished like you do when you're walking in a rainforest. We don't usually feel that way in our own minds and hearts, do we? So that's our situation. So that's looking at nature as a metaphor. And now I'll turn to the classical teachings, <clears throat> a couple of simple classical teachings, to, to get more clearly at what, how, do these, how do these features of greed, hatred, and ignorance, delusion, work in our actual experience? How do they keep us from resting in a, a state of nourished balance inside ourselves? And then obviously, how do they stop us from having the manifestations of that uh, in our relationships in the world? So two simple teachings to help with that. One is the teaching of the, the two arrows. Many of you may be familiar with it, but it's just an incredibly simple teaching. And uh, it's the Buddha has said that... Uh, there's two things that happen. One, sometimes life does stuff to us that we don't like, right? It's unpredictable. Uh, we lose someone we, we really don't want to lose. Uh, we have financial misfortune. Our relationship to our bodies uh, turns a bad way. We get injured or we actually age. Or, uh, or our, the midsection starts to grow a little, which has happened to me. But, right, all these things, okay? Life does something. And then, what? so that's one arrow, right? It's unpredictable and things happen to us that are painful, that we don't want to happen. There's a second level. There's a second arrow. And that's where these movements of mind and heart come in. And what's that? That's what we do to what life has already done to us inside. That's all of our conditioned responses, Right? That's if I if I uh, if I get my hand, uh, let's say let's say I stub my toe. Okay, I'm walking along and I stub my toe. I don't just stub my toe and feel the pain in my toe. What do I do? I think, how dare my mind can go crazy. How dare the person build this building? So there was a little uh, so there was a little lip there in the floor. How dare they do that? Or why didn't the person who owns this now? Why didn't they put a rug there? Or why didn't the person who made these? My shoes, these tevas, why didn't they make a little lip on them so I wouldn't have stubbed my toe? So what do we do? The mind immediately looks for a cause outside of ourselves. Or it does the other thing and it blames ourselves. And does that feel good? No. Does it? <laughs> it adds a second level. So it's like we shoot ourselves by our reactivity to what happens to us. It's the second arrow, and it's suffering. It's called suffering. Another way to look at it, which is quite complementary, um, is, that, is that there's oftentimes in life a, a gap between the way things actually are in our lives and the way things should be. Have you noticed that? 
You might have noticed it a lot here. So how does that work? From whatever our conditioning and whatever our history is, whether it be personal in our relationship with our family, whether it be cultural, and there's a lot of that, immediate culturally or overlays of many centuries, we have patterns in ourselves. So we actually, we actually project onto experience. And we expect it to be a certain way. Okay? So, and it plays out again and again and again, all over the place. And then what we do is when we, we have these projections, we have images that the mind creates, and then we actually form a relationship to them. And that relationship to the image doesn't always match the reality. So one simple example is when we're in relationship with somebody, okay, another human being, a partner. We're in a relationship with them. We, we think they fit our needs at a certain level, right? They look a certain way. They behave a certain way. And then maybe six months later or three months later or two weeks later or 10 years later, we realize something. We realize that we're relating to them as if they were an image that we held up, except they're not, uphold, they're not actually fitting that image too well. And so we get very disappointed with them because they're not, it's not the way it should be. Is it, no, one's, no one's having any response. Has this happened to anybody? <laughs> Raise your hand if it hasn't happened to you. Actually, no, stay in your deep samadhi. It's okay. <laughs> okay, so that's one level. Uh, we do it, with, we do it with, with money, don't we? We do it with, with jobs. Um, we do it with expectations that others have imposed on us about our careers. We're going to be somewhere. When we were a kid, we were supposed to be something. We're somewhere else now. Maybe we're making more money and we're more famous. Maybe we're less. Maybe we're more happy or we're less. But we're not fitting. We're not fitting what that imposition, what that image was. And there's a gap there. Okay. So what happens in that gap if the image, uh, if the reality is less pleasant than the image? What happens? We suffer. There's a tremendous amount of energy that gets caught in all of the splits psychologically between the way things should be and the way that they are again and again and again. And what is this, what is this energy, this trapped energy, revolve on? What is it? So if we look at these energies of, of wanting mind, right, of not wanting mind, and of delusion, of not seeing things clearly, they form like this cluster that binds, that binds us to images, and it binds us to our attachment to the way things should be. Right? And it binds us to our attachment to the way things shouldn't be. That's the other side of it, but the way they are. So we live this on so many, many relational levels, right? In terms of our bodies, our primary relationships, our work situations, et cetera, et cetera. Okay. So on a particularly on retreat, what are the, some of the biggest ways this might happen? Um, one, and this is actually a trap of religion in general, is that we think is that we think that there's something that is being upheld here that meets our image of some kind of idea we have about uh, perfection. So in terms of Buddhist practice, and this comes up in the, the groups all the time, uh, people think, oh, I, I can't be mindful. Right? I, I can't be mindful all the time. And the, and, and the Buddha said, and the books say, and I've already said, and we've all said, <laughs> that there's this incredible potential for this tremendous potential of mind and heart to be revealed and to live from that place more often, right? So when we can't even watch our breath for two, two or three times in a row, what do we do? What is that? The fact is, we're our mind is just wandering, right? The fact is, we're just with the breath a little and then we're gone. But it's, it's deeper than that because we shouldn't be this way, right? We internalize it. We shouldn't be this way. Or something's wrong with the technique. Give me another one, <laughs> right? So it happens all the time. We live through idealizations. We deal with everything. Just watch. Now, the, what, what the good news is in all of this, this is suffering. This is a core, and we could spend a lot more time on this. I think um, Doug will spend some time in this direction tomorrow night. Um, but the basic thing is that we suffer, right? We suffer because life is unpredictable, and it plays out in ways that are agreeable sometimes and not agreeable. And through our conditioning, through our ignorance, through our inability, inability just to be the way things are, we add another layer of suffering. We live through images which don't match reality again and again and again. 
and there's tremendous energy. Have you felt that? Have you felt when you're sitting that when your mind is struggling, right? When it should be some way, but it's another way that there's something that's lost, that part of you is bound up. So clinging, right? A core of our suffering. Right? We, we're holding on to that energy. So practice is learning how to work with it, how to release it, how to touch the awareness that releases the binding. One way to look at it, a, a holistic approach to Dharma um, is simply that the seeing energy heals the splits okay, that are within ourselves and our minds and gives the movement of our minds in the outer world the potential to help heal those splits as well. So it's this clear, direct seeing. But we have to cultivate it. So the bad news is it's there, right? It's, it's a problem, if you want to call it. But the problem is actually in the mind. And it's actually not even in, this, it's not even in the stuff of the mind, which we mistake for it. It's in our relationship to our own inner experience. It's actually not the problem that the mind is wandering or that we have images. It's how we're relating to them. It's that because we don't see clearly, because the mind is pushing and pulling in relationship to experience so much, we have very few minutes. And when we get them, we, we know the practice is cooking. When we actually see clearly and the energy that's trapped is released. In a certain way, in life, life just has situations. It has situations we need to deal with practically. And the mind creates problems. So our practice is to help to work with those. So it's an attitudinal shift. That's the good news. It's attitudinal. And from a holistic point of view, we actually don't have to get rid of the actual content of these things. We just have to change our relationship to them. So how do we do this? Change relationship to ourselves, we can change our relationship to others. So um, I'm going to teach now from a classical sutra. It's actually sutta. Uh, and a little history lesson. Uh, the early Buddha's teachings are done in the language of Pali, the original teachings of the Buddha, and they're in suttas. And you often hear sutras, and I was I mix them up sometimes, which is actually from later traditions, from uh, like the Heart Sutra, from Mahayana, from China, etc. So this is a, a teaching. From, it's called the Sedaka Sutta, and it's a teaching um, the acrobat. And I'm using it because it gets at the key points of practice, and it's also very relational. It's dealing with one's relationship with somebody else. Okay. So this is a story of uh, two from ancient India, um, of two. Well, I'll just read it. The language is a little funny. The blessed one said, "That's the Buddha." Once upon a time, monks, you can substitute meditators. A bamboo acrobat. Took me a while to figure that out. It's not like the, the Tin Man. It means he's an acrobat that climbs up on bamboo, I guess. I don't know what they do. If anyone does, let me know. I tried to figure it out. I couldn't. I, I went over and over again. Once upon a time, a monks, a bamboo acrobat, having erected a bamboo pole, addressed his assistant, Frying Pan. Come, my dear Frying Pan. Who would name anyone frying pan? <laughs> it's, just, it's clueless, but he did. Okay. Or his mom did. Sorry. <laughs> frying pan. Come, my dear frying pan. <laughs> hey, Larry, you're right. It's an easy audience. <laughs> <laughs> Climb up the bamboo pole and stand on my shoulders. As you say, Master, Frying Pan answered. The bamboo acrobat, Frying Pan answered the bamboo acrobat, and climbing the bamboo pole, stood on his shoulders. So then the bamboo acrobat said to his assistant, Now you watch after me, my dear Frying Pan, and I'll watch after you. Thus, protecting one another, watching after one another, will show off our skill receive our reward, 
and come down safely from the bamboo pole. I have no idea what their skill is. But you get the point. You watch after me. I'll watch after you. And we'll be successful. When he had said this, Frying Pan said to him, But that won't do at all, Master. You watch after yourself, and I'll watch after myself. And thus, with each of us protecting ourselves, watching after ourselves, we'll show off our skill, receive our reward, and come down safely from the bamboo pole. What frying pan, the assistant said to her, to her master, was the right way in that case? Deep. Not as deep as Doug's question, but deep. So what do you think? Most of you aren't in deep samadhi, so how many people think you take care of yourself first? Okay. Some of you probably know the teaching. <laughs> okay, good. That would actually, that, in a certain way, that would make sense, wouldn't it? Understanding the Buddhist teachings, that the mind is the forerunner. If you look at the early teachings of the, the Dhammapada, the footprint of the Buddha, it says the mind is the forerunner of all things. So with a, with a cultivated, with a happy, healthy, purified mind and heart, happiness will follow the actions that come out of that mind and heart. And likewise, if the mind is clouded, deluded, greedy, suffering will follow. So it would, it would seem logical, wouldn't it? The mind's the forerunner. You work on yourself, and you'll take care of yourself and the other person. How many people think you're supposed to take care of the other person first? Nobody. Okay, good. We get, good, you are meditating. How many people think both? Okay. Monks, the frame of reference, this is the Buddha, is to be practiced with the thought, I'll watch after myself. A frame of reference, that just means mindfulness, is to be practiced with the thought, I'll watch after others. When watching after oneself, one watches after others. When watching after others, one watches after oneself. So, it's both. Interesting. And how does one when watching after oneself, watch after others. Okay. So how does taking care of oneself take care of others? Through pursuing the practice, through developing it, through devoting oneself to it. This is how one, when watching after oneself, watches after others. Practice. And we'll get into that in a minute. We'll tease it out. And how does one, when watching after others, watch after oneself? Through patience, through harmlessness, through a mind of kindness and sympathy. This is how one, when watching after oneself, watches after, when, excuse me, when, when one watching after others watches after oneself. And then he summarizes, a frame of reference is to be practiced with the thought, I'll watch after myself. A frame of reference is to be practiced with the thought, I'll watch after others. When watching after oneself, one watches after others. When watching after others, one watches after oneself. So taking care of oneself, how do we do that? In the practice, how do we do that? Well, these it's interesting. They were in a precarious situation, weren't they? They're on top, I guess they're on top of a bamboo pole and they're doing some tricks. That's what I assume. So if, if one of them screws up, then it's really dangerous for them, right? They might break, fall down, break a leg, or worse. So it's very important that their harmony is established between them. It's very important that they, have, that they take care of themselves. And it's also important that they watch after each other. So we can think about this in our own lives. Just this analogy, whatever system we're living in, take it just our, right in here, inside of our minds and inside of our bodies. Now, in a certain way, any relationship that we have, th these were two people working together. If we're in a living system, somebody else, a partner or whatever, then we can come to an agreement, right? 
and both parties can take care of each other. In real life, it's a, if we're just dealing with ourselves and we take care of our body, well, will our body take care of us? Probably, right? But it might not. Right? It could still break down in some way, but it tends to. And in the same way, we can, use it, we can use a metaphor, if we take care of the earth, then the earth provides us with a nice place to live, right? And if we don't, and it doesn't seem like we're doing a great job as a, as a race, then it affects us in a lot of ways that, over time, take away from the quality of our life and may eventually end it. Okay. So there's no guarantees when you're dealing with objects, <laughs> right? But taking care of others in our lives, there's a tendency for us to be taken care of as well. So we can see that in terms of our bodies. Taking care of our bodies, we can see here on retreat. If we nourish ourselves, we, if, we, if we get food, if we've been exper experimenting with that, and Larry spoke about this at length last night, if we work with that in a way, the body in, in terms of food, in terms of doing the yoga, if you're doing that or walking meditation, enough sleep, not too much, etc., then what does it do? It creates the conditions where the mind can be more upright, right? The mind can have a better chance to practice in a way that is steady. The energies of the body and mind harmonized. So we can think of this as well in terms of our systems and our families, right? As long as we're going in the same direction. It's very interesting, this, in the acrobat, right? Frying pan and the, the master, that uh, they, had to be, they had to have the same objectives. They had to be going in the same direction. They had to be rolling in the same direction like we're doing here. And then what they then taking care of themselves, right? Mindfully working in a family to look at your own stuff, know what's yours, <laughs> right? Create through mindfulness some separation between reactivity, right? the possibility of not actually acting out into these projections, but seeing things more clearly as they are. That provides a protection for ourselves and it provides a framework with the other person. It's a little different for the other person too, isn't it? They have more safety, right? That's what this sutra is saying. And likewise, that's what this sutra is saying. And likewise, if the other person does it to us. Okay? So we can see that, and we can probably, in your own lives, you can imagine all the different living systems that you're involved in and how there's some form of this, right? So it's actually quite beautiful. There's, a, there's actually an, an underlying kind of vision that, that you can see towards a harmonious uh, existence, the possibility of it. And that when we create the greatest, and, but within that, there's wisdom. So right, just like in the, in the cloud forest, there's all destruction and creation going on all the time. There is here too. There is in all of our relationships. It's not saying this stuff doesn't happen, but it's saying we work with it and that there's a vitality, right? There's kind of an efficiency in how the energy is used, not towards necessarily, it is towards goals, but it's, it's more than that. It's towards honoring the whole. It's honoring the relationships, honoring oneself, honoring the other person, and... So the analogy here is they can get their, they can perform their acts, they can uh, come down from their pole, get the reward, and go on their way. For us, in terms of meditators, it's in terms of taking our practice as life. It means that we um, that we're on board with living as a project of waking up, living as a project of honest, direct, clear relationship, seeing ourselves and others, and working with that in a way where we actually look for the benefit of ourselves and others. You notice how the, this teaching is saying you take care of yourself and you take care of the other too, okay? Interesting. So there's two developmental ways to do this. And we've been actually, they parallel how we've been working in the retreat. And I'll look at the main uh, teaching, the main meditation teaching of the Buddha, one of the main ones, which Larry referred to already. The Satipatthana Sutta, the, the foundations of mindfulness to help us explore this. So are many people familiar with this? It basically says, <clears throat> learn to pay attention to what's happening inside your own experience. In, and it gives four different ways. And the first is working with the body. Okay? So it, it, helps us to, it helps to bring the attention in the present moment. Right? It helps to take us out of the... the, the the uh, tendency to live through our conditioned mind, right? Our projections, all that. And it gives us the ability to ground our attention moment by moment in the present, right here and now. So the body is used for that. The physical body, the body in the body, which means sensation from the inside. Also, the breath is used. 
It's an aspect of bodily life, isn't it? So that's what we have emphasized a lot as a, as a tool for grounding and steadying the mind. But the other three foundations of mindfulness deal more directly with the mind. And they just deal with the fact that in, each, in, in experience, we're liking and not liking experience. Have you noticed that? Pleasant, unpleasant comes and goes. It's like a wave <laughs> all day long, whether you're on retreat or not. There's this subtle undertone. We're liking, we're like, oh, oh, it's not so pleasant anymore. It's pleasant, it's un okay. It's like these waves of experience. Okay, sometimes we're way up, sometimes we're way down. If we're way up, then they call it one thing. Then people get hold of it and make a name for it. If we're way down, they call it something else. But it's a tone of experience that colors and is with us all the time. And the, the third foundation is the mind. It's the stuff of our minds. It's the uh, emotions. It's the thoughts that we have. That uh, and it's 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 categorized in many different ways. But think of all think of all the uh, the thoughts that you've want the, the things you've wanted while you're here. Think of all the inner thoughts of I'm no good, or I'm great and they're no good, or they better stop breathing that way, or I'm gonna <laughs> practice patience. <laughs> Right? All the stuff of the mind, all the stuff that we throw up, and, and it's many textures of emotions and thought patterns and images as well, are considered a place that we can actually pay attention to and have a relationship of awareness that grounds us in the present moment. And the fourth foundation is taken different ways. Um, in one sense, it's, it's called Dhamma, which means all of experience. So in one way of looking at it, when we use our sight, sound, smell, taste, touch, just everything that isn't just sensation in the body, then that's, that's Dhamma. It's also all the natural laws. It's impermanence. Okay? It's the flow of experience. So if you look at this, these as frames, these are all individual, and we can, we can pay attention to different ones of them. They fill out all of our subjective experience. And so the Buddha, in his practice, in the meditation practice, is we learn to calm and steady the mind, right? That's what we've been doing with the breath, if you've been exclusively attending to the breath, in a way that we get some capacity not to be so drawn away, and we get some steadiness, right? So that's one level. So, and it says in the sutta here that practice should be... Uh, <clears throat> so you should practice through developing it, Okay? Right? We've been developing it through devoting oneself to it. So it's very interesting. Our energy towards coming to the present moment, it actually is talking about being devotional in a certain way. We should be devoted. There should be some passion. We should have a pa it's, it's interesting, this, this, this clear seeing. There can be a quiet, steady, okay, I'm, I'm devoted to this process because it's helping me to wake up. So the Buddha is saying, in this sutta, you should take care of yourself by cultivating these frames. Now, he used practice in a general way. There's many other ways to calm and steady the mind. There are many other working with concentration. Um, but that's a general frame that can be useful for us here. And it, it fits well within the sutta. And, uh, it is practice, very much so. So that's one kind of practice. We cultivate it. We develop it. Right? That takes effort. It takes patience. It takes remembering to come back when we're gone. Now, in terms of other people, uh, it says you should have patience, harmlessness, kindness, and sympathy. So on one level, we can cultivate these, can't we? Yes? <laughs> and that's what people have done metta practice. Right? We, we can think, we can actually intend to relate to others in a way where we're not acting out, putting simply, and where we're acting with kindness. Okay? And we can develop these capacities. We can, right? People, you can develop kindness in a certain level. So this is one level of the, of the practice. I take care of myself. You take care of yourself. Right? You have kindly, patient <laughs> thoughts towards me. I'll do the same to you. And our little world will be as harmonious as is possible. And we'll do well if we're moving in the same direction. Nice. So that's one level. Developmental. There's another level, and I'll spend the rest of the talk working in, in this way, which is, it's just, it's the level where there's not so much developing, there's not so much doing, 
there's more a reliance on simply seeing things as they are wherever we see them. So the first mode of practice, or the mode of practice that some people are doing, primarily coming back to the breath, back to the breath, right? That's fitting in with this developing model. The second model is more, it's fitting the more open model, which means that wherever experience is arising, that's where we're meeting it, in whatever form, period. Right? That's it. So in this way, there's just, it's like a study without words of these same foundations of mindfulness, but we're not so worried about just taking care of me or just taking care of you with certain attitudes. Right? We're just seeing. So in this, in this sutra, the Satipatthana Sutta, excuse me, it, uh, it says you can contemplate internally, okay? And you can also contemplate externally. And it's very, this, to me, this is very interesting in terms of relationship because that means that the same things you look at in yourself, you can actually, you can actually start to see in the world. It starts to break down the separation because if we see fear in ourselves and we look in someone else's face, we can see it there too. Or joy or happiness or sadness or whatever is there. And that can actually be a place of wisdom. It's called naturalistic, it's kind of naturalistic observation that we get. And we're not going around looking at each other. I'm, people, especially the new people, they're like, wow, this place is very non, non-relational. Why do these guys keep talking about relationships? <laughs> well, we're prioritizing a certain aspect of it. But we're creating the foundation and the tools so we can take it out as well. Okay? Just, we're just highlighting certain features. But this approach, for me, is, is quite, is quite, can be quite beautiful. That It's not just for me, it's for, for, for all of us. Um, that we can actually learn to contemplate externally as well as internally. That's technical language. It means just being with things as they are, seeing things as they are. Another sutta that the Buddha speaks of, just that the practice is simply being with what's seen, being with what's heard, being with what's felt. Okay? In the seen, there is just the seen. In the heard, there is just the heard. In the felt, there is just the felt, or cognized. All the sense doors, including the mind, that's all there is. Naturalistic, just what life is showing us. And so in this approach, and maybe you've noticed this in your own practice, if we see things as they are, if whatever is there, we watch, sometimes the attitudes of harmlessness and of sympathy and of patience come naturally just through seeing. So I, I uh, teach, most of my teaching is done at a small meditation center um, in Newburyport. It's called the Insight Meditation Center of Newburyport. And um, last week I was finishing up a whole a cycle of classes and one of the students, uh, the week before I had just, I, I had given people the, the homework, if you call it that with this stuff, <laughs> to just observe, to actually, he was having difficulties in his work with, with some, he was working as a laborer, um, I think building stuff. And uh, some of the people he rough with, that he worked with were pretty rough characters. So fairly rough for the North Shore of Massachusetts. I don't know. <laughs> Anyways, so he, uh, I said, okay, just, and he was you know, talking about him in class. I said, okay, for one week, just look at, just when you're with them, just pay attention to the actual features of their face and how they hold themselves. And just tell me what happened. Okay? Just natural observation. Boom. So he came back and he said, oh, it's very surprising. He said, I felt compassion. And I, that wasn't enough for me. So I said, did you feel compassion for you or for them? I thought it might be for himself. He said, no, I felt compassion for them. And he said, why? He said, because when I looked, when I actually observed, something surprising changed in my own relationship to them, just through paying attention. Okay. So there's a holistic type of seeing that just sees. It just sees. And there's a steadiness in this. And there's an ease. And when you're seen by somebody else, or when you see, there's something that happens in that seeing. 
I remember I had a, a grandfather who died some years ago. He died in his 100th year, and he had 23 grandchildren. And um, they'd visit him often, different ones. And what I loved about visiting him is he just gave me, he didn't, it's like grandparents can do this easier than parents, I know. He just, he just paid attention to me completely. It's like he didn't shame me. <laughs> he didn't make me different. He, didn't, he, just, he was just there for me. And the next time he came, he was just there for me. And I knew there was this troop of grandchildren coming in. And from what I heard, that's what he did. He was just there for them. It was just this steady seeing. Now, what did that do in my own, some of my own compulsions and my own clinging and all these uh, tensions that we have inside? They, in his presence, they, some of them moved. Some of them started to dissolve. And so that's what, we, that's, what we're, that's what our practice can do. When we just see whatever's there, the natural function of seeing is to have the tightness that comes from these gaps of the way it should be and is. And this resi- the residual tensions of the conditioned mind rubbing up against experience, reality again and again and again. It gets accumulated, right? Traumas, all of it. When we see holy, then it can slowly, this stuff can slowly start to unpack itself. It can be in emotional form. It can be in physical forms. And what's very interesting about practice is that in a certain way, it, nothing has to happen. We drop our expectations when we find sufficiency in seeing. One of the biggest traps is, is expectation, isn't it? has to be we have to move forward we have to we have to succeed guess what if our if our objective is to succeed to be mindful all the time to be seeing 24 7 we can't (laughs) maybe there's an archetype in the buddha it's an ideal our reality is other than that so why do we hurt ourselves why why can't we just take this patient seeing energy and apply it again and again and again samuel beckett um he get, to me, it's a great practice attitude. He says, ever tried, ever failed. Should I stop there? <laughs> That's how you feel, right? <laughs> Try again, fail again. Fail better. <laughs> so that's our practice. <laughs> the better means there's a little more clear holistic seeing. A little more. And I just want to give a couple, as we wrap up the talk, I want to give a couple of, um, a couple more images from nature. Okay? Um, And uh, they're about our practice. They're about the open mind practice, or the just open, whatever comes, we're with it. And they're with the practice of of, uh, being with an object and using that as a support. So the first one, remember, I think Doug mentioned it a couple days ago. There was a really strong thunderstorm in the middle of the afternoon. Well, me, not having the wisdom faculty, high, highly developed, decided 10 minutes before the storm that I was going to go walk the whole loop. <laughs> but I thought it might rain a little, so I was smart. I put on my little rubber tevas and my shorts and a T-shirt and a hat, and that's it. Okay? I thought, I'd, okay, I'm going to get a little wet, but I'll be all right. So I got around the corner, right, and it just started going rain, you know, at first it was horizontal, then it was, no, first it was vertical, sorry. <laughs> then it was horizontal. <laughs> at first the, 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 the water was very warm and then it was very cold. I was drenched and freezing and I, of course I'm stubborn, I kept going. Then the lightning started coming strongly. And so it was very interesting to watch my mind what I did. So that's, doesn't it feel like that sometimes? When you're just open to whatever it is? It's like you're in the middle of this raging storm, and you're just, okay. It's, it's drenching you. It can be euphoric a little, but it's also, it can be a little shaky. You don't want to die in there, right? <laughs> so when the lightning came, I started thinking, okay, this, I, I got to get a strategy here because the lightning's pretty close, and there's a lot of it. So, <laughs> <laughs> so I decided I'm going to start heading, I'm going to just stay close to the trees. <laughs> well, isn't that what we do in our lives? When, when, the, when the S hits the fan, 
in our practice, don't we run and cling to our images even more in our projections and our fantasies and our poor me and our you're wrong and all the rest of it? No? That's like the big tree, right? Oh, I'll be safe there. I know that mind. Oh, good. Well, fortunately, as I headed for the trees on one side of the road, I was like, oh, not so good idea. Right? Because when the tree gets hit, it, you get, if you're there, it's, it's very unsafe. <laughs> Same thing. Have you noticed? If you cling to all these pieces of the mind, if we cling to any one of them, have you noticed it, gets, it can be a little dangerous if you're trying to wake up? So what I did in my ripening wisdom out there is I stayed right, I said, okay, I'm going to stay right in the middle of the road. And then I got quiet, and my awareness got strong. And I just, it was, a, it was just awareness. It was just seeing. Of course, thoughts are going on, right? And there's fear, and there's whatever, exhilaration. And I walked straight down the middle of the road, and I thought, okay, I'm here. If lightning strikes one of these trees, I'm going to be so alert and so in the present moment that I'm going to dodge it. <laughs> <laughs> That's the end of the story. <laughs> it's true. <laughs> I didn't get hit. I'm here. Of course, there wasn't any lightning within a half a mile, but anyways. <laughs> so the second story is, the next day, I was walking, and it was raining, but it was a gentle rain the next day. And I had an umbrella. <laughs> Smart. And I was going for a small walk, and it was gentle, okay? So I'm hanging out with my umbrella. And you know what the umbrella is the metaphor for, right? What is it? It's having, it's having an anchor in our practice. It's having the breath. It's having something that we're comfortable with, that we can, that we can shelter ourselves, right, with a little bit. So I'm walking along, and I'm very happy. Ah, now I'm protected. And I was, and the rain didn't get me. So then what happened? One of these big horse flies flied in. Flew in. <laughs> and it landed right there. And I, as it flew, and I remembered this big bite I had. This big hole right here, actually, in my foot. Is it got, has anyone gotten bitten since they've been here? These things are nasty, right? They hurt. So immediately I had the memory of the pain. And I was like, I got to get that thing. I got to get it out of here. So I brushed it out. OK, good. We want to get rid of thoughts, don't we, that we don't like. Well, what happened then? I'm walking along. It flew right back in. So this time, different approach. Okay, I'm going to stay with it. You know, I was trying to be compassionate. You ever seen those, po you ever seen those poems of Ryokan? Where he goes, he sits out. He's this great forest hermit up in Japan. And he just has his little hut. And he has this uh, robe. That's all he has. And there are all these fleas that live in the robe. I, this is, he's extreme, OK? <laughs> and so. The story is he goes, out at, he goes out in the day when it's sunny, and he takes the fleas off one by one and puts them on a rock. And then at night, he puts them back in his robe, and he comes in and keeps them warm. <laughs> so I am no Ryokan. I was not, I was not trying to harbor this, oh, this poor little fellow. Okay? I decided, OK, I want to get this thing out of here, but I'm going to stay with it. And so again, I just found my balance and stayed with it. Then almost a happy ending to the story, it flew away. Immediately, my Dharma thoughts started rolling in. Ah, impermanence. See? Just stay with things. You watch them, and they go away. And you're happy. Right? I said, it's almost the end of the story. I, think, I don't think it was the same one. Another one flew back in. <laughs> I think it was a little smaller, not quite as bad. <laughs> so in a certain way, in our practice, we can protect ourselves. And that's what we, we cultivate that. But we still have to be with what shows up. Right? But we're somewhat protected. And sometimes we're just there. We just go out there. Oh, and there's a happy ending. There's one last story. Today, I was walking out there with no umbrella. <laughs> Sunny, nice day. The end of the story, right? No, I saw a fox. <laughs> and so, oh. <laughs> it's like a ni nice mind state coming in, being observed. So. <laughs> It's, it points to the joy of observation, right? And the joy of taking the path as, okay, these are the things we work with. Let's have, let's have fun with them, okay? The practice is about, um, it's about uh, working with what is and learning to hold, learning to be with all of it as best we can.
Ah, I get all these poems. You want a poem to end or not? Yeah? Long one or short one? Short, long and short. Okay, I'll do a few then. <laughs> Ajahn Chah says, I'm paraphrasing. He says, the mind is to be, you make the mind like a still forest pool. Okay. Many strange and wonderful beasts will come and get refreshed at the pool. But the pool will remain the same. Your mind will remain like the still forest pool. Okay. So I started with sipping a cup of tea to stop the war. So what's the place? How do we work between these two? Our mindfulness directly informing the relationships in our lives. Our seeing and our cultivation at times informing those relationships in a symbiotic way, all the different levels. And when do we simply rest and let it all come and go? I guess that was a short one, huh? Want one more? Is that enough? No, I won't read them all. I'll read one more, and then you're done, because it's already been an hour. Larry owed me. I took what I was owed, and I took some more. <laughs> um, let's close our eyes and receive this one, and then and we'll just move from here back into our silent practice. is called Lost by David Wagner. Stand still. The trees ahead and the bushes beside you are not lost. Wherever you are is called here, and you must treat it as a powerful stranger. Must ask permission to know it and be known. The forest breathes. Listen, it answers. I have made this place around you. If you leave it, you may come back again. Saying here, no two trees are the same to raven. No two branches are the same to wren. If what a tree or bush does is lost on you, you are surely lost. Stand still. The forest knows where you are. You must let it find you. Sipping a cup of tea. Standing still. Our lives the stuff of our lives, our minds, our hearts, our activities throughout the day. They know us. The forest knows where you are. You must let it find you. Simply seeing, simply receiving, simply entering fully into just this, this thing we call relationship in all its forms, this thing we don't need to call relationship, this thing that is simply here and now, vividly alive, this moment.
Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.